Hello, I'm Maxine McHugh and you're listening to The Conversation, speaking with Professor John Hattie from the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. And you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. Well, John, I think it's fair to say that a large uh, percentage of Australian parents are about to get a close-up look at what life is like in one of our suburban high schools, and that's Cambria College, which of course is part of this, or at the heart of the documentary Revolution School, which is about to be screened on ABC television. You take part and provide a lot of the commentary in that documentary. Are people going to be both surprised and challenged by what they see? I think all of us who have gone through school remember those days. And in that sense, uh, what you're going to see at Cambria is reminiscent of when we went to school. It's tough. Uh, you know, a thousand adolescents um, is a big ask. On the other hand, uh, watching what happens in that school from turning from a pretty, pretty strong disaster to a revolutionary magic change, uh, what they're going to be surprised at is how they did it. You know, the, 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 the typical answers is that you're going to have more discipline, more uniforms, smaller classes, more curriculum, more all these kind of things. That's not what they did at all. Um, they could have easily started out and said five or six years ago, look, our students love coming to school. They like being with their friends, but they hate the learning in the school. They could have easily blamed the kids. They could always easily blame the socioeconomics of the parents. They could easily have blamed the lack of resources. They didn't. They said, what can we do ourselves? What do we need to change? And that is the biggest change in schooling systems, I think, in the last 40 or 50 years, is that schools now are saying, how do we change to fit the kids of today? And what are the things that Cambria did? How did they change? They, firstly, they decided and they very effectively worked together. They were very, very good critics of each other. I was going to say they're very critical of each other. They were. And they used evidence of what the kids were doing. They didn't ask, what were we happy about as, as teachers? What did we like? What did the parents like? They said, what is making the difference to the students in their learning? What, how do we make the school an inviting place for students to come to? Not how do we make it compulsory, how do we force the kids to do things? So they listened to the students, they interviewed them, they did surveys, they looked at their test scores, and they collectively worked on that very, very doggedly. And you'll see that over the, the, the four episodes of their constant attention to looking at the evidence of their impact. What changed in terms of the teaching at Cambria? They were much more receptive to listening to whether the students thought they were learning. And students, particularly teenagers, are very skilled at knowing if they're learning or not. They didn't just have them sitting there doing the tasks. They were constantly checking. They privileged when students made errors. They got the message across that learning is a struggle, and that's how we succeed here. And so in that way, you don't privilege the bright students. It's not this image that you know, the, the best students are those who do it fast, do it you know, smartly and don't need any outside help. That's, that's a disaster. That's not how we learn. They turned all that on its head and say it's okay to be in the learning pit here. I guess the arguments these days tend to be around um, either the need for uh, structured, explicit teaching or the concept of um, student-driven learning. But I mean, is it a binary choice? That's a terrible um, set of choices, because when you watch what happens in Cambria, they were very explicit and deliberate in their teaching. And it wasn't whether they were 
open or listening to the students or whatever, they were deliberate in their teaching in terms of the impact they were having. Whereas so much of our discussion is, this is how a school should teach, this is how teachers should teach, and teachers do this as well. This is how I teach. Quite frankly, Maxine, I don't care how you teach. I only care that you have an impact from your teaching. And moving it to that next phase and saying, what is our impact of our teaching? is the change that you'll see in Canberra. And, and, and right across Australia, there are many schools doing what Canberra are doing in terms of being deliberate about it. And so, yes, it does require a deliberate teaching. You know, we don't learn by osmosis. We don't learn just by putting things in front of us. It does require expertise. And one of the things that really uh, gets me going is teachers, unfortunately, can be very good at denying their expertise. And what you'll see over the next four weeks is stunning expertise, collective expertise, working together. It's not easy. It is a struggle for the teachers, but it's the right struggle in, in the school. They did a dramatic turnaround. One of the features at Cambria, uh, as is the case at many of the other high schools across the country, is the wide variability gap. Uh, but Cambria is doing something very particular about that. Well, it is because it's, it's realising that when you have close to you know, 800,000 students, you, you've got a tremendous variation and one size does not fit all. Uh, and you'll see with their Darabi program how they specifically pick some kids out uh, that are having some difficulty adjusting to school. But what they were good at is they said, we're not going to take them out of the classroom and make the life easier for the teachers and the other kids. We're going to take them out with the criteria, the success criteria, about when they come back in again. And there's some pretty impressive stories about how they did that. Whereas many schools and parents, teachers would demand those kids be taken out and be treated separately. Cambria didn't do that alone. And so they allowed for the differences, but they constantly said, well, how do we get, everybody has a similarity in that they want to learn, they need to learn, they want to be here in terms of their learning. That's what they kept as constant, but they allowed different ways of getting that. The other gap that the documentary highlights, I gather, is the gap between what uh, parents think will work and what actually works. Well, they also, as you'll see in the program, they did a survey of a thousand plus parents about what they think works. And it's almost the complete opposite to what both the evidence shows and successful schools show. Uh, the parents were very keen about um, homework, school uniforms, discipline, order, and those have a very close to zero relationship with actually what works. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. They're just not part of the solution. So do them or don't do them, it doesn't really matter. It is about that expertise of that teacher, and that hardly ever came out. Can I pick you up on the, the point about homework, though? Because I've also heard you talk about the importance of application and perseverance and mastery. I mean, if whether it's playing the violin or mastering chess or getting on top of a, a, another language, you've actually got to put in the work. So really, isn't that just what homework is? Well, certainly the first part of your statement, yes, deliberately practicing. No, practice alone doesn't do it because you can practice the wrong thing and get it wrong. Deliberate practice, and homework can be an opportunity to deliberate practice. And when homework is deliberate practice, it can have a positive effect. But most of the time, it's not. It's just a task to be done. The kids know it's a task. It's um, you know, the length of homework's negatively related to its effectiveness, all this kind of stuff. And schools that don't have homework are just as well as those who do have homework. In that way, it's a missed opportunity to have deliberate practice. But it's the wrong debate. We have them in schools for 15,000 hours, and you want more? Why can't we do it within the time we have? And many schools can. I'm not arguing you shouldn't have, or have homework or you should have it. I'm arguing that when you're actually in the school, what difference can we make to these kids? And Canberra makes a dramatic difference. And I'm driven, as you know, Maxine, by not just looking at opinions, not just hearing principals tell me that it's a good school. I look at the data. I've interrogated the data very closely in Canberra, and it is a dramatic change.
another feature of what they've done at Cambrai is they've reached out to other schools. Uh, for instance, their math students tend to work with those at Gus Nossel. So it's a feature of a good kind of, kind of network of learning, isn't it? It is, and again, that's very rare because most schools think the problem is solved within the school grounds. But you know how we can get that collective efficacy, that collective teaching, and use the best of what's around and start to do some sharing, I think that would be a, a novel feature of our current schools, but it's a very important thing to say. You know, it's, all the expertise is not just in this building. So, John, what do you think the lessons of Cambria are then for, well, I guess for all of us, but I suppose specifically for how we train the kind of teachers you've been describing? If you look at what Cambria is doing over the next four weeks of the episode, you'll see a lot of excellent diagnosis. Uh, when there's an issue in the school, they don't immediately suddenly decide this is what's going on. There's a massive amount of work. They're doing it collectively across many teachers. They're looking focused entirely on the impact on their students. They do a lot of assessment, both in terms of tests, in terms of asking kids, in terms of classroom observations of each other's. So they're constantly looking at that. And so if you take those kind of ingredients into account, that's what we need to mirror in our teacher education. How do we teach our new teachers to be excellent at diagnosis, to have multiple methods so that if one doesn't work, they've got others up their sleeve? And how do we teach new teachers to evaluate that impact? That's unfortunately what we're not very good at. Most of our teacher education is how do we discipline them? How do we teach the content? And again, we take the student out. We take the learner out. We talk all the time about teaching and teachers and teacher education. And we forget that it's our impact that matters. And so when you have models that are very clinical, that are based on good diagnosis, good interventions, good evaluation, you have very successful teacher education. There are some in Australia. There's 450 teacher education programs in Australia. It's a pity they're not all like that. Okay, putting your hat on as chair of Aitzel, how do we get to that point where we are? Training well, teachers who will have that just the kind of effectiveness you've been describing. Well, what Aitzel is tasked to do uh, by the government in light of the recent um, uh, review of teacher education, I think it's the 102nd review in 15 years, but this one's quite dramatically different. We're asking the teacher education programs to do no different than we're asking Cambria and what Cambria did. Put your evidence on the table that your graduates can change the learning lives of students. We're not asking how many hours did you teach, what did you teach, how many times you go into a school, do you know this, do you know that, can you do discipline? We're assuming all those things. And we're saying, can you change the learning lives of students? It's changing the debate. It's changing the narrative, and I think that's for a very healthy reason. Is it making your life more difficult? <laughs> well, absolutely, because there's a business model out there to do more of the same. Um, like, we have 80,000 people at the moment training to be teachers. There's about 7,000 full-time jobs a year. Um, it's a, it's a, a massive business that we're in, and what an incredible opportunity to highlight quality and to value quality, and quality to me means that as fast as possible we want the graduates to change the learning lives of those students. And just a concluding point, John, um, of course we're, we're talking in the middle of a federal election campaign and it will be interesting because the Cambria documentary runs over the next four weeks right up to the election date. Is there an overarching message, do you think, that um, policymakers um, and politicians will take from this? Firstly, I think the narrative we have at the moment in Australia is good schools are high-achieving schools. I want that changed. Uh, that unfortunately favours the schools that start with kids that are already bright. Um, we have to change it to say good schools are those that add the highest value such that there is high achievement. And there are schools like Cambria that add much more than a year's growth for a year's input. 
Um, now, if they had wanted to solve their problem, they should have abolished all their students and gone and found rich parents' kids to send their kids there. That is not a solution, but unfortunately that's the current image. So I want to change the narrative in Australia from good schools are high-achieving schools to good schools are high-progress schools leading to achievement. The second thing I want to do is I want more policies relating to esteeming expertise. Uh, like over the last year, we've started to form a group of highly accomplished and lead teachers. It's not easy to be classified that across Australia, and unfortunately not all states have agreed to a national... Is that because uh, it goes against the culture? Who knows why states aren't doing it, but not all states are. Uh, particularly look at um, New South Wales and South Australia, they have moved on this reasonably early. They have a number of highly accomplished and lead teachers. They're also now starting to introduce jobs that you can only apply for if you're highly accomplished and lead, and hence salary follows, so we can actually pay better for expertise and get away from the traditional arguments of paying by results, which never works. And getting away from the flat structure, because our salary structure in teaching, you know, by, within 10 years you're at the top of the salary range, that is not acknowledging ex expertise. How do we turn that around so we can make teaching a very attractive profession to people to come in, want to stay in, and we value that expertise? If we don't do that, we will continue to slip down the world rankings. We're slipping a lot at the moment in the last 10, 20 years. We will slip more. And as you'll see when you watch the Cambria one, wow, the expertise of those adults is pretty impressive. How can we possibly deny that? Why do we always talk about the distractions and all the peripheral things about schools and not actually value and fund what really matters, expertise. And you've been listening to a conversation speaking with John Hattie podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. And if you like this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a review or a comment on iTunes.